I'm grateful we're here to learn more about our Lord through his word to us. So let's join together in the prayer for illumination. Oh God, how great you are. How great you are. And you come near. Jesus, you came near. And today you are near and you are in us and you are with us and you are teaching us and you are helping us to learn. And we are so glad about that process that it goes on and your great grace and kindness toward us that you lead us in that. Lead us today by your spirit as we hear from Pastor Matt and he teaches us and he preaches your word to us. May your spirit fill and guide him. May your spirit help us to receive what you have for us today. Amen. The scripture reading is in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 21. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot. Who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. This entire passage is full of disruptive imagery as people are pushing and shoving and even as Jesus calls the disciples to himself, his family tries to talk him out of his ministry, not once, but twice. Would have been so encouraging, so affirming, perhaps even comforting the first followers of Jesus because the Christian faith is beginning to spread all over the world, but it's also becoming increasingly illegal. And these 12 people first were following Jesus because he asked them to. He called them to himself. But also they thought he was a good teacher. They thought his healings and in the next chapter his uh, power over nature made his teaching even more compelling. Then in chapter 8, when they begin to proclaim him as the Christ, they're wondering, does that mean is he going to throw Rome out of Israel? And then he dies for them. And 10 of the 12 of them end up being martyred for the faith because they were unwilling to say Caesar is Lord. They preached that Jesus is Lord. I remember reading Fox's book of Christian Martyrs when I was 18. It was very humbling. I was sitting on a stool in a seventh grade classroom because I had been kicked out of the senior Bible class of my Christian high school. 
reading about these men and women who I asked a really good question that he didn't think was a really good question. It's a story for another time. I'm sure I did 63 things before that that upset him. Amen, teachers? <laughs> That's too quick. But even then, sitting on my stool, being humbled by my predicament, reading these women and men who were so convinced that proclaiming Jesus of Lord gave such life that they were willing and able to die for him. But before we get to that, why did Jesus call the 12? The the text tells us. And he appointed the 12, he appointed 12 so that they might be with him. The first reason given by scripture in these ba- in basic language is that community is important. That friendship is important, that companionship is important. They had some shared beliefs, they had some very different opinions. I think the reason that the three who uh, sometimes are a little closer to Jesus are mentioned is not only because that's how friendship works, but also as a a little bit of a reference to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the same way that the 12 are for sure a new constitution of the people of God that are going to take that all over the world. I love the nicknames and the renames. God does this, right? Abraham's name was Abram. Jacob the thief is renamed Israel. Simon is renamed the rock on which I'll build my church, but also we're reminded that James and John were called the sons of thunder. You remember why? It's because they went to these cities that rejected them and they wanted to call down fire and brimstone and destroy the cities. Do you think that joke was a little bit funny and then was like, and then it became hilarious. That's kind of how I interpret it. You're not going to live it down. It just becomes part of the story. Like the time that I peed in my jeans and put, I was like four, put the jeans on top of the space heater. The space heater lit on fire while my mom was having a Bible study. I don't love hearing this story anymore, but it is, it did happen. Smoke was green. It was very bad. But it reminds us, Jesus needed community, companionship, friendship. These men needed community, companionship, friendship. And it wasn't simply because they needed one another's support. There were some fun stories. Like, oh yeah, Boanerges, how's it going? Calm down, pipe down, right? Jesus didn't go it alone, and we are not meant to either. He calls them to himself, and that is this very regular Christian language, I hope very familiar to you, I hope very comfortable to you. It's both literal and metaphorical, literal in that he called these 12 people to himself. There are a lot of scholars of the Bible who don't believe that the the promises of the resurrection are true, who do not question that a man named Jesus called 12 people from uh, neighboring areas and that they followed him. And that 10 of the 12 of them died, proclaiming that he rose from the dead and entrusting him his life, and that life never leaves. No one questions that. Isn't that crazy? And if that's true, it reminds us of the metaphorical call for us, that he calls us to himself, away from our own way of doing life, 
He calls us to himself, away from a religion that would make us more judgmental and less loving. He calls us to himself, away from the shallow promises of the world that do not deliver, that in fact harm self and others. He calls us into a new family. And here's the thing that's so beautiful about that. In calling us to a new family, it does not invalidate in and of itself the biological family we're given. It frees us to love them without all the potential dysfunctions of that family. I tell people often that a functional family covers over their bad tendencies because that's what functional families do to continue to exist. Coming into Jesus' family allows us to not have to take all that on. Dysfunctional families, all the problems are just right there. They're readily available and obvious. And coming into Jesus' family frees us to continue to love them with wisdom all that. Receiving Jesus' new family doesn't invalidate the people that God has put into our life, but it strips it of extra power. Gives us clarity about it. This is actually why faith is such a delightful gift within marriage. Because we will be tempted, because our spouse has so much power, to act, ask them to act like God. We're disoriented, and we know that they know us better than anyone else, but they are not the Christ. And when we remember that and act, actually act like that and persist in worship, go back to the promises of God, then we're freed into love of them without the crushing expectations that most romantic comedies would put on us. Not against romantic comedies, by the way. There's a whole tangent we're just going to leave on the side about romantic comedies. So Jesus called 12. It's the only sermon series I remember from my church growing up, First United Methodist in Tulsa, and it's partly because the pastor would bring out these giant oil paintings of these 12 Norwegian shipmen because was, there was always wind, and they were always, like, dynamic, and their eyes were bright, probably not really the story. They were a pretty ragtag group, which reminds us that God calls those who know their need to him, and they respond to that call, and they follow because he is good, and also it is good to not be alone. And he called them to preach. Mark centers the preaching of Jesus without telling us a great deal about the preaching of Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 which is about the kingdom. And this is such good news, though we have to do a little bit of work to remember it, because it's invisible. The kingdom is invisible. There are lots of visible kingdoms. Are there any good ones? Like, good ones. Not ones that are a mixture of some good and some bad. Whether it's a kingdom of you, what you would create around, what you would do, left your own devices, the kingdoms of our culture, government, But there is a true kingdom that offers real hope because it's good and life-giving and teaches about love that is not transactional and simply for the other. When Jesus calls the first disciples, he says, I will make you fishers of 
which is a reference to Jeremiah, that those who trust him and return from our kingdoms to his kingdom will get to participate in rescuing people from religious idols that judge and oppress, from the worldly idols that make either shallow or wildly destructive promises into his kingdom. And the 12 got to preach that. If you've read 1 John, that's one of the sermons of one of these disciples after they had served Jesus for a long time and he after the resurrection. If you've read Peter, that's one of the ways that Peter kept preaching that we have a living hope because Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Matthew wrote his gospel and preached that we are to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the Father, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the 12 are to preach and they're given authority. With that authority, tell who is worthy of following. As a human being, that's what separates us from animals is that we worship and more importantly, we get to choose who or what we worship. And there is no no choice. Catch the double negative. If we think that we're not making a choice, we're worshiping ourselves and our concept of the world and relationships and God. The disciples have authority to say what is true, to teach what is true about God, others, and self, and to point to the one who brings restoration. The beginning of chapter 3 goes like this. Again, he entered the synagogue, Jesus, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so we know it's not going to go well. So that they might accuse him, that's going to even go worse. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm? How would you answer? This is an invitation to them. This is in the extra biblical commands around the Sabbath that Jesus wouldn't necessarily affirm, but it's a way of trying to recover those that are trying to accuse and discredit him. To save life or to kill, which is an interesting amplification of the story because the man's not dying. Why does he say that? We'll get to that in a minute. But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. I'm deeply appreciative that Jesus can have multiple emotions at the same time. He's neither oppressing them nor being controlled by them. It's us on our best days, right? We receive the data of the information, or we we receive the data of our emotions. We integrate it. We long to not be controlled by it, but also not to stuff it because that doesn't work. It'll leak out of our elbows later. Jesus could be mad and sad at the same time at their hardness of heart. And said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched out it out, and his hand was restored. If you've read the Gospels, you know that Jesus heals in lots of different ways. I think the fact that he did not touch this man was his final attempt to recover these religious leaders by not healing actively. And he asks them the question, from their law, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm? They should have answered. Then he ramps up the language to save life or to kill. This is Jesus living out what he preaches in Matthew Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, when he amplifies the danger, in this case of religion, 
And he says, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. We know that's an amplification of language because your other eye can sin. In the same way here, he amplifies the problem of the man's withered hand. To save life or to kill. Something spectacular is happening here. Receive it or you're on the wrong side of those who oppose the Son of God. Jesus called the twelve to preach and utilize his authority, which could cast out evil spirits. Even as the opposition grows, the end of chapter 3 is a very interesting section where the family come out to seize him, and then there's this interruption, and the scribes come down and say, I'm in verse 22, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? I wonder if there was a pause here. I hope there was. Where they're like, ooh, that was a pretty smart question. Our position doesn't actually make any sense. Should we admit that? And if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. Ooh, he's doubling down on our illogic. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, but he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Now, Jesus is again opening the crockpot that we can see through the fog and smell what's happening, that good is entering the world, not a new good, but a good that has always existed in the person and character of God in a new way. It's being revealed that Jesus is about to defeat Satan through his work and death. That's why he says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Very gently revealing what he is about to do. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. That's actually good news. Blasphemy is claiming that you can be God. Heresy is leading people away from God. Error is getting the things of God wrong. They all have different, uh, they all do different kind of damage in the world. Picking up in verse 29, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. A lifetime of opposing Jesus with your head and your heart and your actions will mean that you're not his. But you can't do something to separate yourself from the love of God. Romans 8. I was told in multiple spaces as a child that I should be reading the Bible, so I would read the Bible, and I got to Mark 3, and it scared me. I was like, if I get the words right, am I out? So I kind of tried, because I was a dumb 12-year-old. And listen, if you've ever been troubled by this scripture or scriptures like this, that's actually proof of the Holy Spirit in you and some sense that you have of the evil in the world, but the good that is yours because of Jesus. You cannot out God. You're actually incapable of this sin, of an entire lifetime devoted to not only rejecting, but opposing the things of God. This section of Scripture actually should comfort and encourage you. All sins will be forgiven in whatever blasphemies they utter. 
And then the family returns again. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This would be so encouraging to the first listeners because their siblings were very troubled that they were professing that Jesus is Lord and knew that they were in danger of dying. To know that this happened to Jesus, to know that it was expected that it would happen to them, to know that they're given another family here would be comforting and encouraging to them. It didn't stick. James and Jude became leaders, two of Jesus' brothers became leaders in the Jerusalem church. We don't know about all of his siblings. After the resurrected Christ appeared to them, you can read about that in the end of 1 Corinthians if you want. But the reason it would have encouraged the first listeners is that following Jesus will look odd. People will actually think you're foolish or sometimes even crazy. But the offer of Jesus is home. A kingdom that we can't see, but the only good kingdom. Received by putting our faith in him, expressing our gratefulness to him, and then following him, regardless of what opposition we may encounter. profound gifts of the kingdom is it then frees us to enter these other kingdoms be it a conversation about culture or in conversation with a non-Christian or all of the politicking that's just going to ramp up for a while because we're kingdoms of that because we're citizens of heaven we can go to these other places and be agents of love forgiveness, reconciliation generosity because we've been freed from hate and greed and power-mongering. We're freed to be his actors in these other kingdoms because he has called us by name to himself, into a family, and into purpose. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thanks for calling your first disciples and giving some of them nicknames, reminding us that it is not good to do this alone. We ask that we would trust and receive your kingdom, that we might be freed from the anxieties of the kingdoms of this world and of Satan, kingdoms of oppressive religion and consumption We praise and thank you for the work that you did, for calling us to yourself, for then giving us purpose as your followers. We ask that you fill us with gratitude as we continue to sing. Amen.